Holy and Human. I'm Adam Foley. And I'm Elisa Romeo. Today we're talking with Prentice Hemphill. Today we're honored to share our talk with Prentice Hemphill. I found Prentice online through some of their writing and was immediately struck by their unique, deeply embodied, and powerful voice. Their words were so particular, obviously chosen with such great care, but also had this ring of deep resonance, I feel, when naked, raw truths being communicated honestly and in a profound, new way. I immediately wanted to get Prentice on the show because I know this type of writing is only the result of a singular type of deep commitment to inner mining that is so rare and so special. Authenticity is a term that's thrown around a lot, but I think Prentice really is an example of someone really honoring their inner landscape, making conscious room to listen to intuition and showing up for the ever-changing, ongoing feeling work in order to show up authentically for the crucial outer work the world so desperately needs right now. Prentice is a committed somatics teacher, that means of the body, and practitioner and writer living and working at the convergence of healing, individual and collective transformation, and political organizing. Prentice has worked with powerful movements and organizations, most recently as the Healing Justice Director at Black Lives Matter Global Network. In 2016, Prentice was awarded the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Soma Award for community work inspired by Buddhist thought. Prentice is the founder of the Black Embodiment Initiative and host of the awesome Finding Our Way podcast, which you should definitely go check out. Yeah, so excited to share this one with you guys. There is some tech issues. Prentice was out in the country and the Wi-Fi was a little slow, uh, but the content is so great. So just hold on and hang in there. Uh, Also, we've launched our new website, theholyheart.com. This is going to be our new online mystery school. We're going to be putting up courses there soon and putting uh, the podcast is now there. So go check it out. So we both come from a place of we see ourselves as healers. We're interested in healing. We're always wondering and looking at we're kind of obsessed with that question of what heals, what is healing. And so I loved your energy so much in your soul because the way you were coming to it felt so unique and important. So I guess my first question, I, I'd love to hear what you think about that is what is healing to you? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one that I've, um, I, I roll around that question a lot. Cause I think if we're unclear on what we mean by healing, um, we're imprecise on what we do then to move towards it. Um, so for me, I love definitions in general, but it's it's really important for me to define it in a way that clarifies my actions. Um, so the definition I've kind of been working with lately is oh, and I should have I should have pulled it up before this interview because I'm gonna get I'm gonna get it wrong. But um, it is a, a reclamation of our psychobiology from essentially moments in the past where we may have gotten stuck. I think I say it more eloquently somewhere else, but it's a reclamation of our our psychobiology, 
and also our sense of agency and the possibility for safety, um, even through all that we've experienced. Um, and I think it's important, the, the time piece is really important for me, just how parts of ourselves can become stuck or arrested in time, in moments of time. So for me, it's about recovering aspects of ourselves from time or in time to become present in the now. Yeah, that's beautifully that's beautiful. But uh, an interview, just what you're saying there reminds me of uh, the last interview we did was with Officer Clemens from the Mr. Rogers show, uh, which was yeah, a, I heard a great, great interview, a uh, fun person to talk to. And he talked about how what we do now, uh, the way that we're present affects can, our past and our future, and that the healing we can embody now can heal our past and our future. Has that been your experience? Yes. I mean, I think when you're talking about healing or talking about trauma, it's important to understand how nonlinear those concepts are and are in our bodies. And also, we're talking about collective healing. We're talking about historical, generational healing. Um, there's also a nonlinearity that allows us, I think, to heal things that um, our ancestors experienced. And that's actually a really important part of our work, too. So, yes, absolutely. Adam just really. jumped way ahead. That was, that was question 10. I was going to yeah. work up to it. Yeah. He just went right by all my questions. I just, just don't work to, linearly. To yeah. We can come back to it. He's going to the <laughs> metaphysical realm already. Yeah. Um, I was going to work us all up there. But yeah. um, one of my questions, because in one of your interviews you talk about, I'd like to bring in my grandmother, Mary, who taught you about healing and the fire of truth. And that made me want to ask about Mary. And I mean, uh -huh. it just feels, I mean, one thing we do is epigenetic healing and ancestral healing. So I was really interested in what ancestral healing means to you. We live, we're weirdos. We live really non-locally in our time and orientation. So to us, past, present, future is kind of all happening together. And the way we work with the body and energetically is kind of like that. Your biology is your biography. It's all held and it's active and it's inactive and it's nuanced and layered, but it's also, you can access it with intention and points mm -hmm. of reference. So I know that's kind of like, what's the question, but I guess, is there anything I was going to ask you about what you mm. thought, of, thought about ancestral healing you as a healer? Yeah, and I'll just say I don't really identify as a healer, um, just to kind of be controversial on the podcast. I'd, oh, I'd love to hear why, because I, I'd love to hear what that means to you, why not? Because some of the things you say and do, to me, are like the definition of being a healer. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't mind other people necessarily calling me that. It, I, I was having a conversation with a friend um, last week where I said, you know, in some ways I feel appointed by my community to, to do certain things or to be in a certain role. And so if people call me that, or that feels like a useful way of framing my work, um, then I accept it. I think the part that I am reluctant about is um, mostly the way that when we call ourselves healers or when we consider someone a healer, they kind of become a protected 
class of person that is not also working on their own um, stuff. And so I want, I want to trouble it just so that I, I'm moving from a place of vulnerability, revealing that I'm very much in my mess and I don't want anybody to think that I'm oh, not. God. So yeah. I, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I'm a practitioner. I, I, I practice things and I have some skills because I practice and I study and I work, but I, I'm not always a healer. Sometimes I'm a messy oh, yeah. person that gets on my partner's nerves. I guess and my, my definition, <laughs> of, my definition of healer personally presupposes the messy, always working on yourself part. <laughs> so I guess maybe that's just a semantic yeah. thing. Like to me, the way I see us as healers is like as, midwives in the sense of it's not like the source is coming from us but we're helping to facilitate yeah. something that's completely determinant of the exact amount of work we've done on ourselves in terms of yeah, our ability, right. in terms of our ability to clearly do that and of course there's good days and bad days you know what i mean because some days maybe we're not connected enough to the ability to be able to connect to that um but i appreciate yeah. that's a, that's interesting a practitioner yeah I mean, I unfortunately I think there's so much spiritual bypassing and inflation when it comes to healing work. And I think that's just like a general issue uh, yeah. within yeah. Spiritually com spiritual communities. Yeah. You also don't want to, yeah. I think if you're approaching somebody for healing, you, give away you don't want to give away your power to them, put them up on a pedestal and miss yeah. the, the human contact there. One reason we call a podcast Holy and Human is that human messy piece that we always need yeah. to be incorporating that and integrating that into the spiritual work. So it's kind of a weaving of yeah. bringing in the big information and the stuff. I, or it's bullshit. I, that's how I just see it. Or it's just, it just <laughs> smells, yeah. right? Like yeah. there's just- so Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I totally align with that that definition that use. I think it's I think the other piece that's really important for me is that I feel I feel it's not just something that I woke up one day, but that people were like, what you're doing has this value to the community. Yeah. And that's a that's another point where I'm like, I call my I will call myself that when it feels like and it does. I mean, sometimes I say I'm a healer, <laughs> but um when I feel that my community sees me that way or i've offered that value to my community then i feel like i can then step in to that role and that title a bit i, I just but i didn't answer your first question yeah yeah go ahead <laughs> i'm sorry yeah i forgot the first question already i'm um, on this like, journey with you. yeah oh uh, we were talking about um ancestral mm. healing lineages and yes um, yeah, I say my grandmother because I, <clears throat> well, I was thinking, I woke up this morning and I was thinking about how I, the first church that I went to, I grew up in Texas and the first church that I was a part of was a Pentecostal church. And I remember as a very small kid seeing people expel Oh, energy wow. or demons yeah. as they call it in Pentecostal wow, yeah. church and what an intense experience that was and I think as I grew up I kind of put it aside as like oh that was some nutty stuff that people did in the church that I grew up in 
And then as I started doing somatics work, I was like, oh, this is the way that we have about the way the body works and we merge it with this other tradition of Christianity and it becomes this thing. But um, seeing people have very embodied, very tactile experiences of their transformation was really important for me. And I think my grandmother, um, you know, she would lay hands on you, she'd put anointing oil on you, she'd rebuke things out of your body, kind of thing. And that, that I didn't want to discount what I learned in those practices, because now I've studied somatics, and now I can talk about how we you know, co-regulate one another and our, you know, I'm like, no, she, she was doing something there and transmitting some kind of knowledge to me that actually of what has allowed me to learn all of these other practices. And yeah. so I oh. honor her as my first somatics teacher and my mother too. Wow. Do you mind talking about how the, the similarities and differences between that, between this Pentecostal, uh, those maybe interpretation and then what of you're doing now div- divinity and your own understanding i heard yeah. you say once spirit you like is where you keep your question like you yeah you like to have a yeah. church where it's asking questions and i really love that i grew up unitarian which is pretty much that church. <laughs> i think yeah. you, unitarians yeah. are pretty yeah. much that's what they do you sit around there's a whole bunch of democratic you know discussion and questioning yeah and I was the oddball there because I had some experiences I was having that weren't in the realm of questions. And I wouldn't say they were necessarily uh-huh. answers, but they were definitely not questions. They were experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say I've been into some Unitarian churches and I'm not knocking it, but I think what I, I miss about the churches I grew up in is just the, the Holy Ghost, the music, the spirit, the I way it moves yeah. through and takes over. It's a reverence. I was like, oh, we're there, just yeah. talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to to answer your question, I think some of where you're leading around the the to me the practice of being in questions actually leads me to some of my reverence to be um, to offer a question up that is too big for my one body to comprehend is an act of reverence for me to be in questions together is an act of reverence to me and i think you know when octavia butler talks about god as change um one of the things she says that people tend to leave off at the very end of that kind of statement is that she says change god at the very end which means to me that um god is also changeable according to how we live or what matters to us in this moment and i think we're we're at a moment where god has become such a god of the well i'll say for me the way i grew up god was such a god of rules and punishment um and we treat one another that way god was not a god of discovery of reverence of questions of aliveness of not knowing um, so that's the kind of God I try to invoke and be with at this stage of my work and in my practice is a God of discovery, a God of, I couldn't possibly know all that God has created that, that God is the God that I, I think we need in this moment. Yeah. I love that. You said also in one of those interviews that God, God, God is shining evenly, infinitely. And I think that's really my 
definition of God in a lot of ways. It's just that to me, that's what's crazy about so many religions is just not coming in with that assumption, you know, that there is an evenness to the accessibility of God. Um, when you said earlier that you really love definitions, I was, I could, I could feel that <laughs> in your writing in the first way that I found you was because somebody sent me your, your boundaries quote, which I think has gone pretty viral. Um, and the yeah. quote is boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. And I just wanted to, um, put that out there because some of your other quotes that really stood out to me that are so just perfect <laughs> to how you nailed it, um, are, uh, it's the places where your shame persists that your boundaries are hardest to hold. And also healing without justice is acclamation, which wow, wow, wow. And oppression is the requirement that you hold another center at the cost of your own. So I'm just, I think what I was so struck by your energy and your soul and your writing, they all kind of go together. is just this deep commitment you have to being yourself and really sitting with it and working it and getting nuanced. And I think your voice is such a product of that just authenticity that's so profound and natural. And I think as a writer, I'm really interested in that. Adam said to maybe if I'm going to cut a question, cut this question, because maybe this is boring to listeners. But as a writer, we just finished our second book. <laughs> this is our, this we're, is, we're just curious. selfishly wondering, um, what's your process like cool. of like writing and what do you, what, what do you, what's your creative process or how do you feel when you're writing or I don't know anything about writing I'd be interested to hear about. Mm. Yeah. who that's a big one I'm in right now because I'm trying to write a book. And yes, so write I'm a having book. to confront all of the things. <laughs> I can't wait. My I process, can't wait. you know, when you said each of those, oh, I can't wait either. So maybe I need tips from you all on how to get it out of me. Oh, yeah. We'd, love, like, we'd, yeah actually, we'd actually love to talk to you about that. So last, last night, Adam's tired because last night we got our final. What we do is listen to soul, right? So we always do the writing process backwards. Like most writers are like, think of a book, write your chapters out, write that book. And for us, it's always a different process of feel what's coming try to channel through what that is. And so they and then figure out, what, and then it figure is. out what the book is. Like the last thing <laughs> yeah. we're doing is like titling the book or yeah. even writing the summary. It's like the last, like we're looking at the book, like what was that? What, what? is this? How do we name the baby? You know? Um, and mm -hmm. so just yeah. last night we sent off to our agent, the final like pitch basically for the book that we wrote as the very last thing. So it's literally hilarious. Like five, after two years of writing the book and going through the process, I'm like Googling like, how do you make a pitch <laughs> like to write uh -huh. what it already was, right? So we're tired today because we were doing that to yeah. like one in the morning last night, getting that off. Yeah, but I think I know we'd, we're not having a lot of form of questions here, <laughs> but uh, I think what we feel from your writing is this, this sacred curiosity. Like you said, it's this like investigation in the self and this reverence for the deep, deepest self. And which I think we would call the soul. And uh, I don't know if you'd use that same terminology for it, right. but we can feel in your writing how there's, yeah, a reverence and protection of that birthright 
of, of who you are. Uh, and I think that really translates through your writing. That quote about boundaries is just one of the, the most powerful, simple ways to put it. It feels like a direct truth. So we're curious about how that came out of you and what your process is for, for creating. Yeah, I think the, thank you for that. I really do appreciate it because that is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> um, and to, to be seen like that, I really do appreciate it. I think um, it really goes back to growing up in Texas in the South and um, I was bused to white schools. I grew up in a black neighborhood and I was bused. And um, that was a profound trauma for me, actually that experience, because I felt like the experiences I was having and the way that I understood my experience in the world um, wasn't received, wasn't understood. People, I would always say, well, later I would say that I felt like, um, like, you know, the Charlie Brown, the Peanuts teachers, when they would talk, it sounds like want, want, want. I felt like I would be talking and that was, as much as people could understand of what I was trying to communicate. So when I was young, I had this commitment to being extremely precise in my language. I thought that if I said something clearly enough or sharply enough, that it would be understood. Um, wasn't the case. <laughs> wasn't the case, but I got a lot of practice in sharpening my tongue, but also listening to what I knew to be deeply true. The writing process now is like, yeah, it's just, you know, when you get out of your own way, when it stops being about you, um, there's something that can come through. That, that one around shame and boundaries, I was taking a nap right here on this couch and I was not thinking about anything in particular. I was going to sleep and then I was like, oh, shame, boundaries, oh. This had like a clarity about their relationship. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that was it. <laughs> but it wasn't like some, in that moment, it wasn't a deep excavation. It was more like, oh. Um, but a lot of times it is. I do have a strong commitment to being myself and being steady in myself and noticing what takes me off of my path and my course. Um, but I feel like my, I'm here alive now and I want to be awake to every single second of it. I want to be, I want to feel it all. So that's what I try to do. That is a fascinating And make it story. feelable. Wow. Yeah. So that is just amazing that the preciseness might have been a product of also survival of trying to feel like a coping mechanism and technique to just live. Um, it, it's really different, but it reminds me of one of my favorite writers, our favorite writers, Maya Angelou. And I look at things a lot in terms of soul orchestration, like I almost see it like what's like God, the divine's um, like dream of that one person's ability to, to, to come into their gifts in that lifetime. And a lot of times there is trauma or, you know, humongous challenges or e even evil within the path of kind of moving towards that. And so my story, you know, is like, she was young, she named her rapist and then in speaking it, he was killed. And so she didn't speak for years and years. And, and I always thought on a soul orchestration level, how crazy that, you know, she's silent and not using her voice 
And then she moves into being one of the most gorgeous channeled voices, the ability to say things in a way that none of us can say, you know, I mean, you, you might be able to, but it's just, we can't, um, saying things, no. you know, in such a way that is just like the most truth, the most, you know, goosebumpy, the, because of, I think, part because of the trauma too, because of the learning that happened from, not because of the trauma, but because the trauma was part of a bigger um, soul experiencing and like activation process, I guess I would say. So as you're telling me the story, I mean, there's a lot of differences in the stories, but I think the commonalities is like through a trauma, you were forced to kind of, um, I'm just feeling it. Well, it feels like other people couldn't see who you were. And so you had to articulate who you are to some extent and the truths you believe in. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. And it was who I am, but also our relationship. Who yeah. I saw them being. Who they what were. What I saw our relationship being mediated through. It was all those things, like explaining our context. And I think that was, yeah missed when there's so much pressure to receive another story about reality um yeah i think that um when we embody hierarchies that are untrue we embody the logic of those and narrative we embody the history of those and it makes certain people's experiences or existence illegible. You, I, I don't calculate into your concept of what exists and what our relationship could be. Um, so we have to, I think, especially when we're young, as, well, maybe always, we're trying to force and shape these interactions into a known, readable concept of who we should be to one another and I kept having the experience of like I felt early on like none of that is true and I I really credit my parent for that and I credit my own curiosity and reading but um, trying to have interactions that were outside of what was being pressed into our bodies was really hard. And I feel like when I tried to have an authentic experience with people, they didn't know how to register who I was. They had no blueprint. And I knew how to pretend to be who they expected, but I wasn't interested in that. I thought that was so important, what you said in the Ida Stanford conversation about how it's so important in the protests to also be out there in the streets to feel together our sorrow and our rage to feel that together and to you said i thought this was such a great quote that to not be prisoner to the white gaze and the way white supremacy controls our range of emotion and our range of what we're allowed to experience and what we're like allowed to feel what's okay to publicly do um i i thought that was so powerful the way you put that um critically important to feel yeah. ourselves and to feel what's real in public. Yeah. 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 I think, again, I think it just, it's that point again of these, um, these logics that we embody again, offer 
our bodies a certain range of feeling. We impose certain range of feeling on other people. And I, and I think to recover our center, like when I talk about in that quote around how your life really depends on holding another center, to recover your center means to feel what it is that you authentically feel without trying to interpret yourself for someone else, which I think is, you know, W.B. Du Bois talks about double consciousness, that kind of like an, an oppressed person is feeling their own experience and interpreting it from the point of view of the person who has power in any context. So part of our healing is um, rejecting that task because it takes a lot of energy. Yeah. So um, it's important to have spaces where you just don't care. Yeah. You don't care what it looks like to somebody else. Yeah. You feel what's real for you. And it's very healing. Yeah, absolutely. I think about trauma a lot, you know, and so you said trauma is one of those words that's underused and overused. And I, I, I really <laughs> yeah. agree with you on that. Um, and then you said, you know, what black people are promised is trauma and no capacity to hear, heal from that trauma because it can take us out of time and make us unresponsive to present time. I want to recover black lifespan and black time due to systemic violence. There's little resources and time to heal. So when you said uh, trauma is one of those words that's both underused and overused, what, what does that mean to you? I know that's a big question. No, I think it's like, um, uh, it is overused in the sense that it's become so mainstream. People use it a lot to talk about, oh, I was traumatized by that. You were traumatized by that. We were all traumatized by that. So it's, I mean, people say it daily now, um, but we don't always use it in the places that I think are the most accurate use of the word. More, I guess it's more, less it's underused or overused and more it's maybe imprecisely used or not used in a way that allows us to do anything about it. So um I think it's important to normalize the existence of trauma and it's important to really take it seriously. When we say that this is a, a traumatic thing, that's, that's actually something to really pay close, pay close attention to. Um, and I think trauma, the way we talked about trauma historically, the way trauma has kind of come to our collective attention, it's really around whose hurt matters whose pain matters. Um, and the, the way that it's like, you know, looking at veterans of war, looking at women who've experienced abuse, like all these things are in many ways a, a kind of humanizing effort to really understand the full experience of a person. And I think in this moment, it's been really important for me, more understanding about what hurts, what lingers, what cause and effect is. Um, what what then needs to address our experience. And I think for so many of us, we hold our experiences so closely because they haven't mattered to the collective. And I think that this is a moment to really talk about, no, th this is what trauma looks like. These are the intricacies of trauma in our communities. And this is why it matters. And now that we can see it, what will we do about it? Because I really think that's what trauma identifying something as trauma really begs the question of how do you heal it? Which leads me to my next question, you know, where you say, 
you know, I think some people who maybe aren't somatically oriented are just like blown away by this idea of a felt sense of liberation. And I love how you talk about how one of the things you're committed to, especially for black people is this felt sense of liberation in our bodies. It's important as folks that we have moments of being able to feel something liberatory in our body as an indicator as where we're trying to go. And if we haven't felt that or we're leading from a place of having felt that, that concerns me. I think I th what's so beautiful about that is a lot of people talk about healing and a lot of people talk about justice. Um, and I think you building that bridge, it's just crucial. I think it, it needs to be part of the conversation and part of the solutions. And it's the same thing. I think it's, um, I mean, it's really indicative of us to kind of separate them out. I think that it creates uh, the bypass that we see in kind of the spiritual or healing community of like, oh, hard things, gonna do what I can to avoid that. And then in the kind of political or justice realm, the, the lack of care sometimes for how we do this, the interpersonal aspects, the relate the relational aspects of the work um, get taken out and there's costs to that. So for me, my work is to really bridge it all together. And one of my mentors says, we have this one precious life and you can divide it into all the pieces you'd like to, but really the question is how are you living your life and for what? Um, what are you willing to see about yourself and your role in this messy entanglement that we're in how willing are you to be responsible for your life and engaged in life and creating more choice for yourself and for the people around you that to me is the same work it's very much the same work and it requires the same kind of capacities to do it well if you do healing work you are unaware to have some of those harder questions about your own accountability inside the system, what you've embodied and ingested in this world, how you show up, where you apply your skills and work. If you're unwilling to do that, then, then there's a block there that you're, you're trying to hold on to. If in the political work, you're unwilling to ensure that people feel just a little bit more liberated in their interactions, you feel more liberated in your own body you feel more choiceful in your own body, what, what would you be fighting for? Where are you taking me? Where are we going? So to me, they, they feel the, the bridge to them is, what does this feel like? What does this life feel like? And what are we creating? What are we willing to risk to create that? And um, it's, a, it's a false split to me, the thing that we do, to put one over here, one over there. I'm like, that's really because we're scared. Mm. It's yeah. really just fear in both of those domains. Um, but they're all the same. Yeah. That's beautiful. You, you talked about growing up that um, the trauma of family members just disappearing to prison without it being spoken about and then never sp spoken about in terms of disappearing from the family discussion. And you said it's, you started to think of these questions about how, what would, what would the questions I'd be living or asking if I lived inside a world where prisons actually didn't make sense I think us having worked in the system have asked those questions a lot too. And yeah. some of the things you said, who would we have to be? What would we need to be practicing now? What does my worship look like? What would our philosophies need to be? Who would my God need to be to live in a world where prisons didn't make sense? And I don't know if there's right. anything you want to say about that, but it's just so powerful. I want to make sure that that was linked in here somewhere. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, 
that's a great piece. I'm like, you've really done your research. I've done I don't my even homework. Know, I don't even know where you're pulling these pieces from. <laughs> you need you're Ida you know. Stanford, uh, another podcast. I'll send you a transcript of this. And you okay, can right. so like, oh, I said that. That's good. Yeah. That I'm pretty, see, sense. you are a writer. You are a healer. I'm going to deem that title on you. I mean, I think writing is healing. I think we heal through consciousness. So to me, healing is just writing a great sentence that wakes someone up a teeny bit, a half a step, you know? Absolutely. I think I do healing work for sure. For sure. My whole goal today is to get you to admit you're a healer. That's really (laughs) the whole purpose of this call. You got to ask my community. You got to ask my community. That's how I roll. I like it. Um, That's how shamans work too, right? They're like, don't pay me. You see if the miracle happens and then we'll talk. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. You got to talk to my people. Ask my people who I am. They know my name. Um, Yeah. I think the question about prisons is uh it is you know we just get so complacent and we do everything we can to not change and to feel comfort and you know I love this moment that we're in because people are are asking big questions you know it goes back to that thing around trauma and healing and the black community and what we're saying is like this institution you've built creates more trauma in our communities. We don't want it. Yeah. We don't want it. And it reflects a lack of imagination and a lack of responsibility and willingness to create new things that produce new outcomes for people. The kind of the addiction we have to it, the disappearing of people and that kind of punishment and putting things away, you know, disappearing all of our waste. Is how we think of it so much, I think. Um, and that's a delusion. And I think there's so much habit around delusion. It's such a thing that we hold on to here is being able to disappear things that are hard. Yeah. Uh, but I think the, the call is really a beautiful one because we get to imagine ourselves in a new way. We get to imagine the world in a new way. We get to think that there's more possible for each of us. And I love that challenge as big as it is, as much as I've been indoctrinated with thinking about prisons and jails as necessary to think about, oh, what if something were different? Because prisons are not given to us by God. They were created as an idea and a logic inside of a certain kind of system. So if we can create something else, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we, other than our fear, other than our comfort other than our complacency why wouldn't we so i love questions like that i think they really push us into a spiritual rigor that is really important so you know like the quote you read around acclimation a lot of times we're doing healing work just to feel settled just to feel settled inside of this and i'm like no that isn't to me healing work healing work should be about things you can't see yeah that's beautiful. I was saying to Adam the mm-hmm. other day on our walk about how when I worked in um, juvenile hall in California with a lot of girls that were involved in gangs, I remember one day where there was this girl who was so traumatized, who was acting out, and they were like, we're going to isolate her for a week, put her in isolation for a full week. Right. And I was like, that's it the minimum gonna like do. be a schizophrenic yeah. break like like that will a, a psychotic break and and advocating to the judge to try to change that and then sitting with her tr- you know just trying to do grounding body stuff like any 
time I could go in and then trying to change the system now to as well yeah. volunteered within jails. And I think it's like, it's hard sometimes when you're, the system's hard to change. I think that the system end up burning both of us out to a degree of like changing within the system. Um, there's a great documentary Berkeley in the sixties. I don't know if you've seen it, but the whole thing is like, what, how does change happen? And then the different approaches to nonviolence or more <laughs> with other means necessary. And then what change parts sustained and what didn't. Um, yeah. I mean, just during our conversation, I was thinking, I don't think that we've even talked about this, but the prison I was working at was designed by a psychologist that designed it to make it feel like you're always being watched. Wow. Like they had a tower in the middle and super bright fluorescent right. lights in all corners. And, and I would say those guards would think that that is justice. Right, you know, right. they, they're like, this is justice because they're in the wrong, we're in the right. And so that's why we love your work where it's this meeting place of like, but it's not healing and yeah. it's, and it's, and it's, it's causing, and it's not justice either. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, and then, you know, we think about often too, Lisa and I, how you use therapy or self-healing. Are you using it so that you can function that's in society? Right. Are you like, okay, this is how now I can fit in. I've, I've learned to hold my mess down enough. Yeah. that I can function and get along and have friends and, you know, like right. uh, <laughs> present as a normal person. But if the system itself is broken or if our culture is, is, has the wrong values and we're just, he, uh, just uh, shaping ourselves to fit into that box. That's right. That's is right. that really healing to begin with? That's right. That's yeah. right. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Question answered. Yeah. <laughs> The last question I have on here is... I, I got another oh, one, out of okay. curiosity. Well, uh, I just wanted to, you know, I read a blog on your website, uh, which was beautifully written about healing. And you talk about uh, deeply listening. And I'm just curious about when you do uh, somatic healing work with somebody uh, and you're thinking about the microcosm of their body and the macrocosm of our culture, uh, that how do you, what's your process of listening when you, you're working with somebody? Can you put another layer on that question? Yeah, I, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like literally when you walk into a room, what's going on maybe in what your body thinking or and, your and how you're, are. yeah. It kind of piggybacks on my one question, which was you said, I don't know if you know what had that term being an empath, someone who is an empath, yeah. someone who can feel the emotions yeah. of others in their body. And, and some people would agree or disagree. That's a real thing. I would say that's for sure a real thing. It's a form of being psychic that some people have to different degrees. Um, we for sure have that. And what that means sometimes is physical. Like somebody gets hit in their back, you feel it in your back or emotionally you can tap into that. And it, you could just say it's, where is the edge of our realities in terms of, the new physics where we can merge into each other's reality. So you talk about in your story on healing about your right leg contracting as a woman is experiencing a release on the table. We are so familiar with that, what that kind of is and what's happening there. So I think those that happens with deep listening sometimes and that intention to really know someone's story and self so that you can facilitate the healing in the room. So I don't know if that's more confusing or less confusing in terms of adding out to that question, but I think I can, I think I can um, answer it. I, 
I, before I go into a room, I clear out. I try to clear out as much as possible. Um, I notice how possible it is for me to stay steady in my center. And do I dart around? Am I moving around? I try to stay, I try to get clear, but then, you know, when you're with someone, so much information comes in. So it's always a process of like, how do I keep moving things through? Um, I don't necessarily identify as an empath. Uh, maybe I should look into it more. I think I, I get nervous sometimes because I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm sure this is part of being an empath, but I also always want to remain curious. So I, I have sensations or I'll have curiosities, I guess. And so I'll ask, does this make sense? Does it not? Does that resonate? Does it not? Because I know that it's always going through the filter of my being. Totally. So I, I try to be like that with it. Um, yeah, I, I listen, you know, doing somatics works is just like, it's really sensitized me to my life experience so much where I can feel a change in breath and temperature and tautness of the skin. And I have to be enough, I have to know myself enough in order to listen really well to another being and not think it's me. Um, yeah, I listen like that and I get, actually my right leg is an indicator all the time. That's actually my signal. It's, what it really is is where I get stuck. Usually everything else is clear, but I have a place to get stuck in my right leg. And when I can shake it or ground down and just let it go, then, the, then I'm very much in the flow of my practice. But when I'm starting to get, when I'm starting to really empty out, I feel the last bit of pressure in my right leg. Mm. And it's like, no, hold on to <laughs> something. <laughs> last yeah. moment. Hold on to like uh, self-consciousness is what I think it is. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing I have to get rid of in my practice is like, stop being over your shoulder. Trust the body. Yeah. And so that's the last bit of like, wait, but do you know what you're doing? Is this real? Is this, you know, and then I let yeah. it go and just flow and then I can listen a lot better. Yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. Well, uh, we just love uh, that you came on here with us today. Uh, and I just wanted to close up with uh, if you wanted to tell our listeners what you're up to these days, what you're working on and what's Where coming down. Find the pipe. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, a lot is happening these days. So I am writing a lot and hopefully that will manifest in a book. I am starting a new project called the Black Embodiment Initiative, where we are going to be exploring how to embody the skills and competencies to live and create a more just world together. So I'm working on that right now. Awesome. And I have a podcast that's coming out in probably like a week called uh, Finding Our Way. And you'll be able to find that in all the places where podcasts are, where I'm just talking to a bunch of guests that I think have a, a piece of the, the compass about where we could be headed. And you can find me otherwise on Instagram. That's mostly where I put things, um, Prentice.h, or on my website, ApprenticeHempill.com. And that's Prentice with one S, just one S. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, be well thank you so much, it. Prentice. Really appreciate it.
Yeah. Yeah, it's great to be with you all.